As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. There's a global pandemic raging. Millions have died, and it's on an upward trajectory. No, I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about obesity and its close associate, diabetes, which have led medics to coin the word diabesity. According to the World Health Organization, there are 650 million obese people in the world, and that number has tripled since 1975. It represents 13% of the world's population. Just recently, the World Health Organization commended the latest research from the World Obesity Federation, that shows a link between the higher rates of infection, hospitalization, and death due to COVID-19 by people who are overweight and obese. So what's going on? Is diabetes connected with other eating disorders like bulimia or anorexia? And how big a threat is it? According to the South African social scientist Melvie Todd, it's definitely what you might call a modern problem, but not in a good way. Here's an extract from How to Make Healthy Food Choices on The Naked Scientists. If you are following social media, you have no doubt seen that big food is the devil of the day. Purposefully designing foods that are cheap, convenient, irresistible and addictive, and then reeling us in via seductive marketing messages with every chance they get. At the same time, we are also bombarded with health messages. Eat less sugar, eat less salt, eat less fat and banish carbs. These messages are also problematic since they reduce food to single nutrients and do not acknowledge the complexity that exists in most foods. With me to discuss obesity and eating disorders are the neuroscientist Dr. Giles Yeo, Principal Research Associate at the Department of Clinical Biochemistry at the University of Cambridge. 
His main preoccupation, how does the brain control or fail to control appetite? And welcome to to Pete Honick, a family therapist whose lifetime work focuses on child and adolescent mental health, and in particular, eating disorders. Well, let's kick straight on. Giles, why are we getting so fat? Or is that no longer a politically correct question to ask? I don't think it's a politically incorrect question to ask at all. I think there are ways of which we use terms, fat, obese, um, obesity, overweight. And to my mind, they're descriptive terms if used in the correct setting. I think your intent and your tone does matter a lot. But fat or carrying too much fat, I don't find it offensive if used correctly. Why are we now carrying too much fat? Undoubtedly, it has been driven by the environment. But as a geneticist, however, and I always at pains to actually point this out, is I don't study genes in isolation. Most geneticists don't study genes in isolation because it only tells you uh, one part of the story. Whereas how I study how the genes are influenced by the environment, because that is what they're there for. And so what happens is we have become fatter as a species because of the change in environment, but yet not everybody is fat in this same environment. And how fat, how much weight you gain in this current environment we're in, that is where the genetics lies. Pete, I know that you've expressed concern about the messaging um, with terms like fat. What's the issue there for you? The term fat had very significant meaning to people with anorexia. It was toxic. Um, it was absolutely terrifying. And it was, you know, their life's work when they had this illness to <laughs> overcome the toxic effects of fat to rid themselves of it. I mean, I always think that the term fat can be used as a cudgel, can be used as a tool to actually smack someone over the head. Yeah. And some people do. Many people do, I have to say. I think it's the most misunderstood of organs. And fat is, I realize, it's a gathering of cells, but it is actually an organ. And it's actually an energy storage organ. And actually, and this, and this is what I try and, and tell people all the time, it isn't bad. It, in, in a sense, it's bad when you have too much fat because that causes all kinds of other problems. But we all need fat. It's not only cushioning. It doesn't only make me sitting down you know, slightly more comfortable. It is there to store the energy we actually need. So fat is not bad. And, and this is it. Too much fat is unhealthy for you. That, but that is it. It makes me think, Giles, about how when we were working in multidisciplinary teams, we, we would have a dietitian on our team. A large part of our program with the young people and with their families, critically with their families, was to, I suppose, what we would call a psychoeducational approach, which would be talking about the sorts of things you, you're talking about, too. So trying to redefine and reframe notions around fat as an, uh, an extremely important part of one's life, you know, in order to keep yourself alive, as I understand it. Yeah, you need it. Part of the problem, I would say, is that fat is, uh, and, and all of our words, are connected to social discourse, aren't they? So they have meaning. So, you know, it's fascinating. Fat has a biological meaning or biochemical meaning. It also has a socially constructed meaning. When I was doing this work, and I started it maybe 30 years ago, fat was toxic to our environment. The preferred body shape did not include a lot of fat, right? So, so actually, it has a meaning beyond its purpose. And that's what I think working closely and excavating and understanding much more the insider experience of somebody with an eating disorder 
helps us as clinicians to really attune to what is playing on these young people's minds. We have at the same time, don't we, a growth in anorexia as well as in obesity. Why is that happening? So I want to, I guess, ask the question with regards to if we deal with eating disorders as a whole, okay, including anorexia, bulimia, orthorexia even uh, these days, is there truly growth or is there a better diagnosis of such conditions? Because I think for obesity, there is undoubtedly a growth. And But obesity in very many ways is an easier thing to spot because there is a size thing. People can see it. Eating disorders, there is the traditional anorexia, which people think they can spot just by looking at someone, Okay, which sometimes people can. But then most of the other eating disorders, to my mind, are invisible. So I guess, is it true that there is an increase in eating disorders or is it just an increased reporting of eating disorders or an increased understanding of what is an eating disorder? I mean, I think the jury's still out on that. There's definitely, definitely a, a better identification of eating disorders. But certainly with much better identification, diagnosis, and, and I have to say much better treatments. So outcome is not so awful. In fact, outcome is hopeful for people with anorexia nervosa and bulimia. It's hopeful. Uh, most people recover. With that picture as a context, then actually services are in fact or have, in fact, expanded because to meet the need which has been identified. But, I mean, clearly there are massive environmental factors related to causation. But I think what we learned, and this is what was so interesting to me when I was thinking about obesity, and I think everybody now buys into this, it's multi-determined. I was very interested in what I saw and read of your work, Giles, because you seem to be saying, if I'm right, that the key factor is environmental. There are other factors, but the key factor is environmental. And I don't think we would say that in eating disorders. They're a big implicating factor, but I think there are all these other factors, familial, personality, you know, social, everything's in the mix. Can we touch on some of the interventions, Pete? Uh, In the second half of the programme, we're going to look at some of the genetic issues. Uh, But in terms of the personal interventions, what have you found that works? In relation to adolescent onset anorexia, for instance, uh, the treatment that is evidenced, although it's limited still, is our family interventions, family therapy, and fascinatingly, I would say, multifamily therapy, multifamily group therapy. Quickly to explain that, bringing together groups of families, you know, a number of families together into a program of treatment over a course of time. The models vary and the number of sessions vary. But the outcomes actually for group family therapy or individual family therapy are pretty well equivalent. There's no significant difference really between the two of them. So they're both very, very useful. And it's a particular type of family therapy. It's eating disorder focused family therapy. I won't go into the details of it. But they are better, seen to be better, provide better outcome for young people with anorexia nervosa than an individual therapy approach. And what we found and what most centres find is that you need a multidisciplinary approach, which provides the sort of thing I was talking about before, dietary advice. It provides space for the young person to talk with somebody on their own. It provides family therapy in some component. If they're inpatients, it, it needs very skilled nursing. 
there are various approaches which need to work together in order to unpick and dissect and then very carefully and I have to say with some authority if you like they need to support a young person going through what is a torturous process towards recovery. This is Naked Reflections with me Ed Kessler. My guests are Pete Honick and Giles Yeo and we're discussing diabetes. In fact we're not. We're discussing anorexia and obesity. A lot of research is being done on how to treat this increasingly, or what appears to be increasingly, prevalent problem. Here's Luca Lotta speaking on the Naked Scientist show, Vets Beyond Pets. We know from other studies that obesity is 50% due to the environment and 50% due to uh, genetics. And by genetics, I mean several different genetic variants in different genes in the genome. The main reason actually uh, why uh, obesity is so prevalent in in the population is actually due to the environment, the uh, availability of calorie-rich food, the trends of physical inactivity. But the reason why we study the genetic aspects of obesity is that obesity helps us uh, gain insights into the mechanisms that lead to obesity and therefore ways that we can prevent or treat this condition. Charles, I'd like to explore some of the genetic aspects, which is your area of research. There was some media hype about the obesity gene. Does such a thing exist? No, I think there are genes which influence body weight. There are rare conditions in which single gene defects can cause obesity. Actually, there are more, more than 20 of those. So there is no obesity gene. But I think there are definitely repertoires of genes that can lend someone to being heavier in this current environment. So it's an oversimplistic term when they, people think that it is one, one gene, but there definitely are genes involved, and it's more than one. And tell us a little bit about what can be done. Is it about modification? Is it about education? I think that's the $64 million question. I studied the genetic variation of why people are different body shapes in this in this environment. And I think what we now know is because there are going to be some people who are always more driven towards food. For some people, it's always going to be more difficult to stay lean or to lose weight. So there are going to be two ways of actually trying to deal with the problem. Okay, In fact, there are probably three ways. There are therapies in, in which you can actually do something about it from a, from a clinical perspective. These range at its most severe end of the spectrum from bariatric surgery, so this is replumbing your guts. But those, because it's a major surgery and it's permanent, these tend to be reserved for the people living with the most severe obesity, okay? Therefore requiring to lose weight now. Then there are going to be drugs. For example, just last month, actually in February, towards the end of February, there was a really powerful clinical study uh, published about a drug called semaglutide, which is a gut hormone mimetic um, in which one's daily injections have been shown over a period of about a year and a half to result in about 15 kilos of weight loss. So these are one's weekly uh, injections, pardon me. So it's a possibility of becoming a game changer. It's still not a pill. So those are the therapies. Um, And then there's a situation of, well, okay, well, how about the rest of us? How how about me? I want to lose seven pounds. How do I do that? And that's where the trickiness begins. At the end of the day, the only way to lose weight is to get someone to eat less. But because of the complexity of why someone eats more or less, there's not one size fits all. So we need to find strategies in which we can get ourselves to eat less. So you got to, first of all, control the environment you can control, which tends to be your household. Okay. But then in terms of the broader environment, leaving in the wild, it's very difficult to control. 
And so there, we then need really policy and government help. Obesity is a public health problem, which requires public health solutions. Now, I am not in any way suggesting prohibition, because obviously there's a, there's a scale, right? You can say, well, we're going to prohibit. Children are not allowed birthday cakes, which is obviously stupid. All the way to the other end, full libertarianism, hunger games. You can do what you want. So clearly, we as society will need to decide where in that spectrum we're going to need to regulate the food environment, the outside food environment that we're in. So I think that is going to be the way. It's a holistic answer of how to treat obesity, depending on the severity and depending on social norms and will, for lack of a better term. I don't think yet we have anything like enough understanding of, I'm thinking particularly about childhood and adolescent obesity. And that's terrible, isn't it? Because that predicts poor outcome in adults. What we don't yet have is good enough understanding of treatment, psychologically informed treatments. So I absolutely appreciate what you're saying about public health approach. And it seems to me that that's a bit, that is a very big thing that's happening now. Why have we sleepwalked into this situation of this pandemic of obesity, whereas when COVID started, it was massive in terms of public awareness, investment. Why is there this uh, contrast? Because people consider body weight a choice, okay? Because people do not consider the biological aspect to it. And so because it's a choice, because it's a bad habit, okay, therefore the solutions must be simple because we're talking about sin, okay, which is what we're talking about. This is a sin tax. These are my sin days for food. All of the terminology with regards to food means that it's entirely down to choice. There is a choice, Clearly, and there is a level of self-responsibility. This is I'm not trying to, to say anything like that. It's my body's my health, my children's health. But if we do not accept the biological role, which I have to say the prevailing view is still it is a bad choice. Just stop stuffing it in your mouth. And that is why we've sleep walked into it. We have not deployed the right tools in the right way and the right resources in order to really take the problem head on, accept the problems that are there and try and solve it. That's why we've walked into it. That's what I, being part of this podcast, has helped me to think about in relation to the, the comparisons, if you like, with where we were with eating disorders 30 years ago, maybe. I think it was thought about as a choice. You know, people were treated in ways which were about their behavior is, you know, not helpful to them, bad, and therefore they need to be restricted and refed. That's it. It's that simple. It isn't that simple. And that's what's become clear. And the more that people have understood the complexity around eating disorders, the more the treatments have become extremely complicated and need to be integrated. There is a pathway to what's called tier three services under NICE guidelines for children with obesity. But I think those tend to be very much oriented within the medical model. As far as I know, and I could be wrong, there are not many, if any, services within mental health services that actually look at this and try to integrate medical and psychological models. If there are, they will come up with more and more complexity. They will have to start looking at the issues around choice, you know, motivation for change, those sorts of issues. Context issues. How do you work with parents so that they don't feel blamed, which is what used to happen with anorexia, but that actually they understand partly through psychoeducation and partly through recognising the complexity, 
and the need to take some authoritative stance at times and to model, we need to work with them and we need to work with their wider networks and systems. It's very, very complicated. And I don't think, I don't think we're anywhere near there. Can I just interject? You mentioned about the fact that parents are blamed, used to be blamed for the eating disorders. It's interesting you should say this because we're probably only a couple of years removed from a situation where in some situations of kids with severe obesity, so we're not looking at just a little bit larger kids, seriously obese kids, in which the kids have been taken away from their parents because the parents are perceived as abusing these children. Whereas these kids actually, as it turns out, as it emerges, had genetic lesions which caused their obesity. I mean, it was absolutely criminal. And so we're hoping that by saying that, look, you know, getting someone, a child that obese to that size is not a natural, okay, it is natural because of the mutation, but it is not a normal scenario, okay? And so we need to really have this education of not blaming the parents okay, when it comes to severe obesity in kids. And, I mean, to my shame, I have a memory of something similar in some work that I was involved in some time ago. And there may have been safeguarding issues, and obviously I'm not going to discuss it. But the point is that it was about the child's obesity, that those were the reasons uh, for the child for proceedings. And we did not understand, in my view, we did not understand sufficiently well what you're talking about. And similarly with anorexia nervosa, there are times back in the day where that was not unfamiliar as well. There, there may be other reasons, but actually, you know, this notion, and you talk to parents who used to receive treatment for anorexia and nervosa a few decades ago, parent blaming was experienced very, very strongly. Parents have written about it. And that's why I just wanted to say one other thing. In terms of treatment, insider knowledge is absolutely critical. It, in my view, it moved us on from just thinking we are the experts, we know, blah, blah, blah. of course we have expertise, of course neuroscientists have expertise, people who understand all sorts of things have expertise to add into the mix, as do young people who experience these things and their parents, and they can help move us on in terms of treatment, clinical work, that makes a difference. And so that's why multifamily groups are so successful, because it's a mix of all of those skills. And multifamily groups are also co-facilitated by parents who've been through it before. Can I explore whether there are particular communities or groups that are more liable to suffer from eating disorders, whether it's faith communities or whether it's ethnic minority groups? We hear, for example, with diabetes, a certain propensity in South Asian communities. Is there something you can shed light there on, uh, Giles? I mean, it is undoubtedly true that there are certain populations, certain ethnicities in which there are going to be increased propensities for certain diseases, including diabetes. The diabetes in the South Asian population is particularly interesting because South Asian and, to be frank, East Asians, people that look like me as well, don't have to get that large. We don't have to become that obese in order to actually tilt into type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is linked. Obesity is a risk factor for type 2 diabetes. The question is why, okay? And as it turns out is because we carry too much fat. But how much fat is too much fat? And how come some people can get very large without becoming ill and other people don't have to gain that much weight at all? And so it's all about one's safe fat-carrying capacity. So, so back to fat, the evil fat, 
people misunderstand what happens when you gain weight or lose weight. They think that you gain fat cells and lose fat cells. And that's not true. Okay, you have to consider your fat cell, fat like balloons. As you gain weight, they balloon up. And as you lose weight, they shrink back down. Okay, so we don't change fat numbers, not not really uh, um, by that much. The issue is, however, the safest place to store fat is within the fat cell. Okay, otherwise it goes into your muscles, your livers, and cause all kinds of issues. And here's the thing: each of us have a different safe fat carrying capacity. South Asians and East Asians famously do not have to get that large. Okay, before we increase our risk of the of various diseases. However, in contrast, famously Polynesians, okay, who can get enormously large before they actually tilt into disease. The example with the South Asians that you ask about has to do with a genetic propensity for how much fat you can safely store before it then leaks out, for lack of a better term, and goes into areas which causes problems. You touched on, and I'd like to bring this to a close with a final question, the question of free choice. I think you mentioned that, Giles. How free are we? I mean, it's a profound philosophical question, really. Are we fated to being either, I'll put it simply, either obese or lean? And I know it's far too facile, but perhaps you can just tease that out, both of you, as we draw to a close. So in terms of whether or not it's a choice, I'll deal with that first. People always say, well, how can it not be a choice? I'm choosing to put the pizza in my mouth. You're choosing to do that. Here's the important thing to remember. We do not gain or lose weight overnight. A single meal is not going to change your weight. Okay, So you may choose or choose not to put the pizza in your mouth. What we now understand is that our body weight is the function of thousands of different feeding decisions that we have made over many years. Okay, Now, we also now understand that because of one's genetic hand of cards that's been dealt, that we are only a few percentage points, say 5%, less likely to be able to say no. Some people are. So 5% of a difference over thousands of feeding decisions is hundreds of thousands of calories, okay? So over the period of time, the scale we need to change weight, it is not a choice. It's like going and playing uh, in a casino. The house always wins slightly, but over a period of time, the house will always win. With regards to are we fated, people think that when we study genetics, well, we're thinking that your genes determine who you are, a point in space and time. And this is not true. I mean, genetics brackets a range of possibilities. You know, why do I look Chinese? Because of my genes. Why am I bald? It's because of Chinese. But you can move within that bracket. The one analogy I'll end with, I guess, is I will never, ever run as fast as Usain Bolt, ever. Okay? And it's because of my genes. That's, that's what I'm going to stick to. But it doesn't mean that if I train harder than I do now, that I won't be able to run faster. So genetics gives you and brackets the possibilities. You can't make the impossible happen. All I'd want to add in relation to eating disorders and personal choices, that's clearly, and autonomy, that's clearly a huge issue for people who <laughs> develop anorexia nervosa. And of course, people have the right, in quotes, to be thin. There are some people, and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people, are thin or want to become thin. But there are some people who perhaps, similar reasons I don't know, to those that become obese, some people are triggered through thinness into developing an illness called anorexia nervosa. And none of us are islands. So, so actually, yes, there are individual rights, but there's also the right to health and the right to treatment if you have an illness. It, it seems fairly straightforward to me in terms of eating disorders. 
people have a right to treatment. We'll leave it with lots of possibilities. I have to bring this podcast to a close. Thanks to my guests, Pete Honick and Giles Yeo. We'd love to hear from you at Naked Reflections. You can contact us at the Wolf Institute by email or on Facebook or Twitter. Let us know what you think of the show. We've covered a wide range of subjects which you can find by delving into our back catalogue. And it's worth checking out our new podcast, The A to Z of the Holy Land from Arab Design. All you need to know about the Holy Land in bite-sized chunks. You can also find the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientists.com slash reflections or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week with some more guests. <laughs>